0: Hello and welcome to this, the eighth episode in this second series of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Angus Ogh mcanally Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I am a 21-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene. And a third generation theatre maker. And as ever, we are coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar. And of course, this second series is brought to you thanks to the generous support of the Arts Council of Ireland. Now each week, we bring you these conversations absolutely free of charge. We've promised that we'll never ever charge for this podcast, but we are looking for you to go and put your money into Irish theatre. That's the whole ethos behind this podcast, to support report promote and celebrate all that's great about Irish theatre and as we say each week the easiest way to go and do that is to just to go and buy some theatre tickets whether that's top price tickets at one of the big houses maybe slightly cheaper tickets at one of the more fringe venues or even just going over to a crowdsourcing website like fundit.ie or indiegogo or something and finding a theatre project there to support there's always great rewards in return for donations and donations can often start from as low as a fiver and of course there are ways you can support without even having to put your hand in your pocket go and tell people About this podcast, whether that's in person over a cup of coffee or a pint, um, or by sharing the link as a Facebook post or retweeting the link on Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast over on iTunes, that's a big help for us in terms of chart position and algorithms and all that. But these podcasts are also streamable and available for direct download over at riseproductions.ie. Do go back and listen to all the other episodes, both in this second series and the full 52 from uh, series one. Uh, You can leave us a review over on iTunes, or simply click to rate us on their five star rating system. You can of course follow us on Facebook. We are facebook.com forward slash Rise Productions Ireland. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We are at Rise Ireland. And it's been a lovely week here at Rise Towers. Everything shut down for the Christmas. It was all very pleasant. Uh, Santi brought me new gear for the podcast. I got posh new Sennheiser uh, headphones on at the moment. So I can completely hear how stuffed up and man flu I am at the moment. So that's good, Greg. And also he brought me some theatre tickets, which I'm very, very happy about. Uh, And I hope that Santi brought some theatre tickets for all of you guys too. Because we've got to keep this show on the road. But it's been nice to kind of to log off for a little while, have a little bit of a break, catch up with the family, recharge the batteries, and then get ready to attack it all again in the new year, Uh, because the thing never ends, lads. We've got to keep this show on the road. And so, look, that brings us to our guest this week, who is the great Lachlan Deegan, a man who I have a huge amount of respect for and someone who was one of the earliest supporters of Rise Productions. It was Lachlan who programmed us for our first stint in the Dublin Theatre Festival back in 2011 and that seal of approval was massively significant in putting Rise on the map and for opening up all the international touring we did with Fight Night. He's a guy who's had a really interesting and varied career, working with heavyweights like Druid and Rough Magic and running the Dublin Theatre Festival. And now running the Lear Academy, where he's responsible for a whole new generation of actors, writers, directors, designers and technicians. I'm the biggest fan of the Lear. I think it's an incredible place that's turning out exceptional theatre makers and... On a basic level, I'm just really glad to see a three-year vocational actor training programme back at Trinity. And that there's a through-line there with the likes of Brian Burrows and Brian Singleton in terms of continuity from the old BTS course that me and so many others went through. But the Lear is like BTS on steroids. It's bigger and badder, but it's also smarter in terms of the setup, And of course, it's infinitely better resourced. And, speaking of resources... They do have a friends and patrons scheme that I'd encourage everyone to check out. Apparently, I was the very first person to sign up to be a friend of the Lear. And that's something I'm really proud of. Uh, The business has been very good to me over the years. And now that I'm in a position to give back, I think it's important that I do. Because I love the idea that the Lear has said that no student talented enough to be there... Will miss out on a place for financial reasons And supporting those bursary schemes Is a small way for me to give back to the business And to make sure it stays strong for the future I think it's really important And if you're in a position to do that I would wholeheartedly encourage you To check out those schemes But enough of the infomercial for the Lear Let's get to the real reason we're here Here he is, the brilliant Lachlan Deegan The wonderful Lachlan Deegan Thank you so much for coming on the podcast It's great to be here So let us start as we do every week and go back to the very beginning. When did you have a first inkling that a career in theatre and the arts generally might be for you?
1: Yeah, I suppose it goes back to a very, very fine English teacher in secondary school in Macloday, Kent of Wexford, the late, great Pat Conaghton, who, when I was um, leaving school to go and do a business degree in DCU, he made me promise to do three things, to join the Drama Society and to go and see plays in the Project Arts Centre and the Peacock Theatre. Um, I had never heard of either. Um, it was before the internet, I didn't even know how to find them. I remember looking them up in a phone book <laughs> and putting um, 20 pence in the slot and hitting the A button and asking for directions to find the project. Wow. Uh, and wandering around Temple Bar. Um, and yeah, and I suppose found myself without any friends in Dublin who were interested in going to the theatre, going on my own a lot for four years of my degree and seeing really amazing work actually. Um seeing you know uh, like the gentle island and the peacock directed by frank mcginnis changed my life right first realization that homosexuality as a kind of a way of life even existed or that the notion of love between two men existed in a way that wasn't shameful um i saw fragments visabella yeah um i saw digging for fire in the project and thought i want to work for that company really badly (laughs) uh i want to hang out with them they're cool um yeah so it was it was an amazing time actually um wandering about on my own uh sitting in dark theaters being at the first preview of dancing at Seine and the abbey and coming out and thinking i'm not quite sure it's, it's working at the play.
0: <laughs> <laughs> always a very keen eye, always a very keen eye. And, uh, uh,
1: yeah but yeah so there were amazing times actually and it was at the it was at a night in the peacock yet again but that first company ever that young company of actors that gary brought in from mostly from the gay of school yeah. isn't it um, Stephen Brennan and uh, uh, Ashley Sullivan and that whole gang of people and they did a play called Away Alone which again was um, kind of charted the story of young gay Irish people or young gay Irish person in New York in the 90s and legal Irish or in the late 80s which again was ran parallel with my own coming out and everything I was I remember sitting in the peacock hanging around wanting to introduce, say hello to those actors and I wanted to hang out with them as well uh, when I, and I realised I, I was going to have to work in theatre for the rest of my life. There was no, nothing else for it, accountancy wouldn't do. I <laughs> uh, went to the career guidance teacher and asked her how do I do that and she told me to go and do an arts administration diploma, which is what
0: I did in Galway. In Galway. And I mean, th- I'm just g- going back to that English teacher, th- I mean, the advice to specifically go to the Peacock rather than the Abbey and Project <laughs> rather than you know the, the gate, gate or anywhere and, else, yeah. yeah. That that's someone who knew what they were doing. A very, very impressive
1: man. Great story actually. Um um unfortunately Pat passed away a couple of years ago, but he was one he was best friends with McLally in in U C G and so was in a lot of those early stu- student productions with all the druids wow. and was in the you know, those first summer seasons in um, in Galway uh, those Druid seasons and was teaching with Mick in um, in June wow. and the decision had to be made about whether to go full time with Druid or stay teaching Mick left famously and uh, Pat and, um stayed teaching which was of huge benefit to all the students yeah. in, in the FCJ convent in Bunclody County, uh, Wexford um, where he instilled a great passion for literature and, and theatre in particular in so many students in fact there's a great story of Many years later, um, being in the Peacock in my first play, The Stomping Ground, we'd um, been working shopping with Jerry Stembridge and Jim Culliton was directing a reading of it and we'd struggled to find young actors who weren't all like nice, well-brought-up middle-class boys. We needed somebody like tougher and slightly harder and we found this great guy who, to my shame, his name I can't remember, he's not acting anymore and afterwards in the pub after reading i asked him one night why did he um how did he come to acting he didn't seem to have come the usual route and he told me he had a great english teacher in school and he was from county carlo we we sat talking for about an hour about how english teachers can change your life and it turned out he'd gone to the same school as i had and it was the same teacher and it was my kind of captain, oh, captain, my captain moment. I went home and wrote the back on it and told him about the coincidence and said, if you by any chance happen to be in Dublin on Friday, come to a reading in the Peacock. And of That's course fantastic. he did. Wow. He was a great man. And That's him very fantastic. much. Fantastic.
0: So the trip west to Galway then, uh, tell me about taking on the diploma and what, at that time, what you saw as your route into the business.
1: Yeah, well, I had a business degree, and I went and did the um, the only course in the country at the time was in UCD, and I remember going um, and doing the interview and being told that um, I was the last person they wanted on the course because why would they, why would you um, train like you know the whole point of the course was people who had kind of artistic experience or were you know creative uh, and needed to acquire business skills in order, in order to kind of apply them in the arts. Um, And I was completely devastated because having decided this was my route in life and I was going to be a manager in theatres and it was all going to be fine and I was going to hang out with actors all the time Um, and then UCG announced uh, the first year of a new postgrad and I went down to the interview and I had gotten as much experience as I could on top of what I'd gotten already going into the UCD interview to try and counteract this perception that there was no room for me um, and mike diskin um and, uh, who has also left us unfortunately um he was on a chair in the interview panel, and I came into the interview and I sat down and he said, "I see here you have a business degree and I took a deep breath, ready to defend myself and why i needed uh, why I desperately needed to do uh, a postgraduate arts administration in order to make it my way into the business. Um, and he looked up and he said, Lockdown, we've had 150-something applications for this course. You are the only person who's applied with a business degree. As far as I'm concerned, you're the only person we should be taking on this programme. So it was a complete wow. reversal. Uh, and yeah, and that's how I ended up in Galway. Had an amazing time. Great course. First year of a course about stealing problems, but it was like a, a deep immersion in all the art forms, actually, in terms of, you know, a kind of a very sophisticated arts appreciation course with lots of um marketing and business skills thrown in um well, and you know which kind of set me on my path in life I, I the third term of that you went on work experience and the first day i arrived in galway i went in and knocked on the door of druid theater company um jane daly answered and uh, and i said i'm i'm starting that tomorrow on um, the arts administration diploma and i'm need the placement in third term can i do it in druid uh so when i arrived off to the college uh other people kind of going god imagine doing your placement in druid and i was sitting there feeling quite smoke <laughs> <laughs> having it all sewn up with jane um which is yeah somewhat unfair on jane but it was an amazing experience to go straight the druid and to work there and, and then and um and with the administrators at the time they went to maternity leave and i covered her maternity leave and that was i was off it was my first paid job
0: so tell me about why you you were choosing the arts administration route that at that stage you didn't go I want to be up there on the stage acting with people. like you say so you're, you're there in those dark theatres uh, uh, you know in Dublin in the early days I, I want to hang around with these cool people but the impulse initially wasn't to be on stage acting or to be directing or to be writing the impulse was I want to use my business skills to make this happen
1: yeah or well it wasn't it was yes it was I want to hang out with these cool people but it was also I believe that these stories that I'm experiencing and this you know this communal experience that I'm having is changing me and changing the people around me and has the power to change the world like I, it was it was and still is actually, I suppose my passion for theater is that idealistic um and I just wanted to be part of making it. I didn't feel you know I suppose there wasn't a sense of I didn't have a huge ego in terms of wanting to be at the center of it. I suppose I very much just wanted to be part of it. Uh, part of the team and I thought well. This is where I can add value. This is where I could slot in Yeah, Um, and it's funny. It was on the business degree again. I was on a work experience as part of it It was called intra at the time from DCU and I was in how medica international incorporated in Limerick, which is a, a subsidiary of Pfizer so vast um Multinational I was a, a very small cog in the finance department Um feeling utterly miserable thinking how what am i going to do how am i going to f- figure all this out how am i going to end up working in theater and i was reading the limerick leader that somebody had left behind at their desk and there was an ad in the limerick leader for the for the um the artistic director slash manager of the bell table art center ah. and i remember looking at it going a manager theaters need managers that's what i do okay i ended up of course then doing the course going back to work in the bell table art center in limerick uh as the press officer in the first show that toured was um, Lady Windermere's Fan by Rough Magic and I got to hang out with those cool uh, those (laughs) cool kids (laughs) in the bar
0: until late in the morning afterwards Um, so fresh off the back of the diploma work experience placement in Druid and then maternity cover in Druid yeah and so how how long did you spend there and what was it like to be part of you know that was you know, again again time back to back the, the you know in the school and whatever
1: yeah there was it was amazing i remember walking into that it was they were still in that very small um house essentially which faced out onto key street just on the corner of druid lane and i remember walking in you know the floorboards were slightly crooked and it and the uh the whole building was creaking and i remember you know Jane Daly coming down the stairs for the first time I ever met her, and I remember saying, "Wow, this is Druid a theatre company." <laughs> In my mind, I had imagined and a vast performance space or um, grand offices. You know, and I suppose it was that realization actually like all theatre companies are you know up the the back of rickety staircases somewhere. That's where I spent most of my life working ever since. Um, but, and it wa- but it was, to me, it felt um, so significant that I was, you know, sitting there answering the phone going, hello, Druid, that I was part of that team, that I had, you know, I had somehow made my way inside the tent, you know, or um, inside, you know, which is this, can be a very tight clique in terms of making your way into a professional theatre. And I was sitting at the desk and, you know, and there were stage managers and actors and directors coming and going, and I was helping and they con- contributing. It was a great time in Druidism. Gary had left to go to the Abbey and um uh melissa stafford was the artistic director i came in just after midnight court had opened and was going on tour and as black pigs dyke was touring um i found that famous tour to Derry, when the show was interrupted by protesters and it went on tour to australia around that time and into london at the lyft festival in london it was, a great, it was a great time great learning to be had
0: and galway is always an exciting place to be at the best at times did it did it feel like it was a particular kind of golden age time where the druid were in kind of full swing yeah, I did,
1: I suppose. Yeah, I think it was like at the upper edge of the the, the arc, you know. Yeah. It had, perhaps it had, nobody realised it yet, but it had it had um, crested great. a bit. But like it was late nights in the tubber, you know, drinking with the Mautnus crowd and the Arts Festival crowd and the Druid crowd. And it was, you know, um, you know, I was young, I had some money in my pocket for the first time. There was a lot of fun to be had. It was a great place to be. Um... Yeah, it was, yeah, fond memories.
0: So what was the route then from Druid on? Where, where was the next stage? So I sent
1: 42 letters out, I remember, with my CV in them. Uh, as my the job was coming to an end, and Pierre and Yvette Campos were running what they, the U3 Theatre yes. in Ballina. They he, um, wrote back to me and said, would I come up to meet them? They were going to do a tour and they'd they needed, they wanted a, they'd gotten an Arts Council grant or something that they could afford an administrator for the first time. Um, so I hitchhiked up to Ballina and stayed there for six months, I think working for them, and then back down to Galway briefly and then applied for the job as a press officer, or PRO as it was called at the time, in the bell table in Limerick, where I spent
0: four and a half years of my life extremely happily. And... And an awful lot of people. I mean, I, you haven't even spent the time in Dublin. A lot of people would presume that Dublin is the big spoke. It's the hub of theatre and stuff. So to spend time in Galway and then in Mayo and mm. then coming down to Limerick, did you feel any kind of a particular uh, urge to be outside of Dublin? That there was, or was it just that these were that these were the jobs that were coming up, and you feel that you could you know make a contribution where you were.
1: Um. I didn't feel the pull of Dublin necessarily. Like working in the Bell Table was amazing. It was one of the premier touring venues in yeah. the country. As, as it now is begin, becoming again, thankfully. Um, you know, and so many companies and great shows toured in there. Um. You know, and it just you know, it was always great to you got to know people really well when they were on tour and away from home, and happy to stay out in the White House until late at night. There's a theme <laughs> emerging here. <laughs> I'm a sociable guy. I you know, as I say, I I like hanging out with cool kids, and um, but I myself and Siobhan Colgan, who was um, uh, running the Limerick event card at the time, and subsequently came on the staff in the Bell Table. Um we would go up to Dublin like every second weekend, you know, and do, you know, a Friday night show, a Saturday matinee, a Saturday night show and back down on Sunday. So we saw an awful lot. Um uh and myself and Mary Colin and Anna O'Shea who were running the bell table at the time, we'd get in the car and go up to Galway for the Druid openings mm-hmm. or we'd be booting around the country. So it was you know, it didn't feel. I didn't feel like. I didn't feel like I was missing out on very yeah. much. In fact, it felt like the very opposite. Limerick had a really dynamic scene. The Bell table was in. It was a really vibrant place at the time. Mary um, Call had you know had really brought it to life. It was, a, it was a, a kind of a hub for so many kind of emerging organizations like the Umbrella Project and the um, On Fringe and the Fresh Film Festival, and um, were all they were all at home literally in the Bell Table and it was a really
0: great place to be. So, having spent a few years there, what happens next?
1: (laughs) Yeah, then everything changed, kind of, arguably for the worst. Um, True Lines changed my life again. I suppose it's the next play that I always say changed everything. And I think it changed everything for so many people, an awful lot of people of my generation. Um, Where, you know, it is that classic thing of a moment in in theatre, a shift happens from people see themselves represented or see their generation or their class represented on stage for the first time i think true lines did that for young irish people at the time Young irish people in their late 20s early 30s it was telling a story of a very globalized ireland you know um you know kind of stories i suppose of sexual freedom and intellectual freedom that other generations hadn't hadn't experienced and travel and um and it just felt so necessary and I, as I would I would want to do I would have seen it on my travels and we would go back to Limerick begging Mary to take it on tour <laughs> um, because I really wanted people to see that show and I wanted people in Limerick to see that show and especially younger people mm-hmm. and Richard Cook had produced it um, for Bickerstaff and it came on tour and opened I don't know to 20 people on the opening night it was totally devastating and we met up the next morning and this well, we devised the plan probably in the White House Um that the next morning we would take action, and we, you know, unlike any other publicity campaign we ever did, and we decided to do UL and the art college, and we divided them between us, and we literally walked into lecture halls and in both or into studios, and said, can I interrupt you, I want to tell you about this show that's running in the bell table, and why you should see it. And by the end of the run, there was like 150 people at night in the show, yeah. and it really caught on and yeah. found its audience, and it was, it was a great week, actually. And I was sitting, talking to Richard at the end of the week about why was it so hard to find an audience for that show, and I was saying that I thought it was just that, you know, people want writing plays for that generation or for a new generation, it's a classic thing. And and he said to me, well, why don't you write, why don't you tell the story? And I I remember going home and we'd gotten free um, copy books out from Quinsworth at the time, they were handing them out to (laughs) everybody who spent, I don't know, more than £10. And I sat down one evening and I, I wrote Act One, Scene One, and uh, and I wrote a play longhand, which became The Stomping Ground. Um, and that shifted me out of my very um, happy, really happy, yeah. contented life working in kind of administration and PR and, and and I suppose on the administrative side, the producing side of the house. Um, and suddenly I, people were uh, engaging with me as an artist or a writer. And
0: were there ideas in the back of your head for a while before that? I mean, it it can't have been just the nudge from Richard. I mean, or or had you been even trying to write smaller no, bits before that? I'd never, ever imagined myself as a writer. Really? Like, not since
1: writing essays in school. Yeah, I hadn't written a word. Uh, yeah, and I can't... Like, the story was quite autobiographical. Um, and again, I suppose it goes back to those key plays. It was It was a coming-out story. It was, I suppose, it was... And uh, when you look back now, I suppose there was very little about the gay experience, the gay Irish experience. Uh, very few stories have been told on stage. Uh, I suppose that's the story I felt I wanted to tell or needed to be told. And I, you know, and I, uh, you know, I Pat Connaughton back in school had directed us in Philadelphia. Here I come, you know, the play loomed loomed large, and I suppose still does. And you know, any country boy who you know. Um, with a complex relationship with his family. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, um, our Private was there. The notion of that kind of formal experimentation was there. And I think that was the starting point. It was just, well, what if I told that story, but, you know, if you use this slightly theatrical device. And I just sat down and started writing.
0: How important for you was it, the idea of that representation on stage that, you know, people hadn't been seeing their own lived experience up there? Mm. How, How much of a driving force was that for you in the process of getting it down on paper?
1: It was the it was a hundred percent of the reason why I decided to write. Yeah, that conversation with Richard Cook was the reason I decided to write. It was m- imagining audiences engaging with this work and seeing work that they wouldn't hadn't seen before, and it was a, about a new generation experiencing the theatre for the first time. I suppose imagining my younger self. It's like maybe it's only ten years already, but my younger self back in the Peacock, having you know my life literally been changed by yeah. the place that I saw. I suppose that was the comp- that was what
0: compelled me. It is the magic cause I, again for me. My formative years were again like that—a teenager on my own in the Peacock at the project through the through the nineties—and that this magical crucible where anything can happen and just how it it can really fire up a spark for people. Yeah, yeah, something
1: something shifts. It really does and it's indelible and it's um you know people It's what you probably call it getting bitten by the bug mm. or whatever but there was no going back actually mm. it, it um, and yeah, it's, it's it's I suppose I regard it as the most fortunate thing that ever happened to me Um, like it dictated the whole course of my life and I've had such a rich and fulfilled life as a result and I go right back to you know that teacher in fact I'd been for it was around the time when the bank still came and did interviews in schools and I was offered the bank and I was just deciding I was taking it because I um, just thought, well if somebody wants to offer me a job, isn't that great? I don't yeah. have to think about it. And the same teacher took me out of class and told me that I shouldn't go to the bank. He thought I had more to offer and I should go to university. Wow. Yeah, so, you know, it's... Which is a big play. Yeah, it's, I mean,
0: yeah, it's, yeah. you know, it, it, in terms of advice from a respected mm. school teacher, that's... Yeah. Interesting, but I mean, thankfully, that was the advice you got. Yeah,
1: yeah, you just think if that hadn't have happened to me, like, you know, my life would have been so different, and I can't imagine a, a better life than a life in the theatre, actually.
0: Did you feel that you changed, or how you carried yourself changed, having gone through the process of writing the play, or do you feel that maybe other people within the world of theatre were, were interacting with you differently now as artist mm-hmm. rather than purely as manager or administrator?
1: Yeah, I learned... F- very quickly, I realised very quickly that actually everybody everybody in the business is pigeonholed. Right. Um, and every, it, it suits everybody that, you know, everybody, you know, fits into a particular box. Um, and that by defying that uh, categorisation and actually, however, um, being perceived beyond it opened up a myriad of possibilities for me, actually fact that pe- people thought oh he has a business he's, he's good with the numbers and he's, he's organised and reliable but he's also creative mm-hmm. and uh, inventive and, and artistic actually opened up that's kind of what opened up my career um, and made it so interesting um, you know because I would not have been considered as a, as a potential um, I think director of the Dublin Theatre Festival if that hadn't have happened for mm. example
0: and again through that process having not had the impulse to write beforehand having now gone and done it did that ignite a fire for you and go, this is, you know, finding my artistic expression in this medium and in this form is something that is working for me. I don't want to chase it and chase it. Or was there an element of going, okay, I've, I've completed the first one, now I've done that, so I can walk away? Or, or, or what? How, how did that work?
1: Yeah, well, I was working very closely with Jim Nolan through that period in Red Kettle, who produced you know, two full-length plays um, with a great relationship. Um, and I realised two things, I suppose, about playwriting. Um. At the time, I wrote to get back into the rehearsal room with the actors again. I, like it's one thing to hang out with the actors again, but I loved, I loved that process of them, the collaborative process of literally making the theatre in the mm-hmm. room, um, and you know going to the pub afterwards yet again for the few drinks and 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 the endless talk about theatres. But that's it's always been one of the things that fueled me, um. Is, ta- is, is, is talking about it and the impact that it has as, as much as anything else. But the other thing that I learned was actually I kind of hated the actual writing process. Um, I found it um, I found it lonely and um, I, it didn't suit me. I'm a very sociable person. I you know I thrive in the company of other people. Yeah. Um, sitting literally staring at the wall, trying to craft to play line by line, really didn't suit me. But I also realized. I think ultimately I realised I wasn't good enough at it, um, and it's something I think that not enough people in the business do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's I think it's really important that you're your your own greatest critic. Mm. Um, I look back now and I don't I, those two plays I would like the Queen and Peacock to follow the Stomping Ground without Jim Nolan's kind of like significant help, kind of dramaturgically yeah. in terms of shaping those plays. I don't think. Either of them would ever have reached the stage, and indeed Jerry Stembridge, and um, who contributed hugely to the stamping ground, um. Th- but uh, even with that help, I kind of came to the realization that I was at best going to be a mediocre playwright, that um, or you know, a good playwright, yeah. but not a great playwright. Um, I'm channeling Eamon Dunphy here, perhaps, but <laughs> but actually, and I, that I had no. Interest in just being mediocre or good at something that actually uh, you know I've got a, there's a drive within me that yeah. um, I want I wanted to be making great theatre I wanted to be making great things happen great experiences for audiences happen uh, we went on I went on the Stuart Parker week with um, the great week up with Graham Wyber and uh, um and a group of young writers up in annua kerrig um and mark a was on the same week as me and he was essentially writing Howie the rookie in the next bedroom wow. and there was something about i think you know that week and spending time particularly with mark and hearing him talk about what he was crafting and me realizing how like i was sitting in the room next to him passing bricks trying to write a draft of a play that never saw the light of day just realized that you know, I wasn't one of life's great natural writers, and as a was result, wasn't going to, to be one. I wasn't going to be a good enough writer. So I very consciously made, made the decision to stop.
0: And, and, because writing anything, creating that and putting it out in the world can be quite exposing. It can be quite vulnerable. It, yeah. it was part of that that, if you if it, it's that thing of kind of you, that your your taste in theater and your like your appreciation of, of great theater. Like if you felt that you weren't getting up to that level, that that it was. Was that the kind like if I'm not going to hit where I want to be, then let's not. Was it? an the element of that
1: Well, yeah, I suppose you know, like in the in the rehearsal room and in the theatre with the actors and the director. Like I, I really believed in all the productions. Yeah. I believed we were hitting a mark, but yeah. actually, I think it was alone in the in the bedroom, sitting at the desk. Yeah, was where I doubted myself actually, um, but. I found and I did find I really, really didn't like being um being out front. And I didn't like uh being as vulnerable as the writer is. Mm-hmm. I didn't like the process of the reviews, um, even though they were often very um positive, but yeah. you know, like everybody else, you know, you focus in on the negative. Um and I, feel, I felt very similarly in Dublin Theatre Festival actually. I realize i'm I'm much happier very happy where I am at the moment actually <laughs> where you know where I'm able to make have, have kind of um, in, in a position to make artistic decisions and you know to really shape the program, but not um not uh, very public uh, yeah. in doing so uh, DTF as well is a very lonely station in terms of um, you know putting your signature on that for well whatever three weeks of of a program. Uh, and, you know, there's so much at stake every year in that programme. It felt quite similar, actually, to yeah. the experience of being a young writer, having to wake up on a Sunday morning and read Emma Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rite of passage for all of us.
0: Um, so having made that decision then, that maybe writing wasn't for you, is the next step then rough of magic? Yeah, so, then, so while I was tra- trying to work that out, I did
1: then decided, actually, I needed to move to Dublin. Right. Um... You know, because I was sitting alone in a theatre in Limbr- or in a bedroom in Limerick um, trying to write plays going I could be up in Dublin doing this and seeing a lot more theatre because I wasn't in the social uh, environment at the bell table anymore and so I emailed Siobhan Burke another um, great mentor in my life um, and I said I was planning on coming to Dublin and I was looking for part time work while continuing to write and she asked me to come in because the Theatre Shop which of course became an Irish Theatre Institute um, were looking to do um, a book for um, the f- uh, first edition of the Irish Theatre Handbook yes uh, which was uh, uh, an amazing publication it's it probably uh, you know only to be found in archives near you at this point um but uh, i thought great I'd love to do that um uh, and I, I went in working part time in the theatre shop still based in Rough Magic yes uh, put together that First um, edition of the handbook um and actually as I was that contract was coming to an end, Lynn Parker took me out for a drink and said um you know will you put your name forward for a job we're advertising um I'd like you to uh, consider working for Roof Magic, mm. and that was nine and a half years later um I, I was in Roof Magic which was an amazing time
0: incredible and and so I mean having gone from digging for fire mm. to then being inside. Yeah. How was that? What was that like? It was
1: wonderful. They were wonderful years. Um, like it was, I had various roles in there. First of all, like Deb Raiden was the producer and I was the company manager. And then I decided I wanted to do the Irish Playography Project with, with Irish Theatre Institute again, so I went part-time. And Lynn, um, and at that point, I think in terms of trying to create, keep me involved in rough Magic, she said, why would you like to... Um, I know what would keep you in with magic is if we set up a literary department. Because I had been banging on at the time, as I am again at the moment, yeah. by the way, about how Irish theatre is t- taking its eye off um, playwriting again and developing writing for the stage. Um, at the time I was banging on a lot about how well they were doing it in Scotland and London and elsewhere, and why couldn't we have proper structures and, um, and whatnot and initiatives to support writers and Lynn said well what if we were to make you part-time literary manager and which is a, again it was I suppose wearing those two hats mm-hmm. um, and that, so I set that up in Rough Magic and we set up the Seeds program and uh, I started commissioning writers and developing writers and, and then when Deborah moved on to Liverpool um, and I was offered the job of a producer I had the wonderful privilege of producing all of the plays that I had been developing with writers as literary yeah. manager over a period of time so the a great like improbable frequency, Arthur's masterpiece was like developed very slowly over years working with Arthur on that. And plays like The Sugar Wife for this cootie and Take Me Away by Gerald Murphy. And, you know, like, there was a really, really strong theme of new writing coming through the company at that time. And then the, the kind of big epic um, shows that, like that Lynn was at the helm of, you know, kind of um, Taming of the Shrew and Copenhagen and those, you know, you know, shows that were really hitting the mark at the time, so yeah. it, was really, it was really, but also, like, you know, it felt like a very productive time, but also we did Boomtown in the middle of that, somehow. So, you know, in terms of the peaks of troughs of companies, um, so the Boomtown was, was a low point for anybody who associated with it and probably anybody who saw it.
0: But, well, I mean, you know, if we had some magic secret to success, we'd all be Indeed. Riverdance millionaires yeah. at this stage. <laughs> um, so then the move to DTF. Hmm. Oof. What was the pull for you uh, to curate that festival? What, what was As you were looking at it, going, I'd like to roll the dice on that, what was the particular pull for you?
1: Well, you know, since working in, the, well, maybe in the bell table, you were looking at Irish theatre going, that is without that the coolest job in Irish theatre. Yeah. I'd love that job in the future, thank you very much. That would suit me very nicely. Um, and I suppose it was always in my mind that, you know, that that was the ultimate job, Um
0: that you uh, that I might work towards, um, more so than say the Abbey or the Gate or anything like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it just you know because it was just just um then I think it was the notion of the international work you know and the it was coming up to the festival every year um and you know seeing complicity streets of crocodiles and going home in the train to Olympic you know with your mind full and you're you know and you're kind of. Um, I'm just feeling so satisfied and you know your life's so enhanced and I just thought imagine having the opportunity or the privilege of traveling the world to find theatre like that and again bring it home to share it with audiences so that's been a that common thread for me throughout I suppose it's what my, uh, identifies me ultimately as a producer is that I'm always I'm always about trying to create experiences now for audiences um, and to create that magic um, and that alchemy that happens when you bring great work in, into proximity with an audience. Um, and DTF just felt more so than the, I suppose, the politics of the Abbey yeah, and, you know, sure. the weight of the Abbey. Um, and in the end, you know, the gig was, it didn't, like, didn't nobody thought that that job would yeah. ever come up. Yeah. You know, for all my professional life, Michael had been there. So, yeah, the festival just was the, what seemed like the sexy gig as far as I was concerned. Uh, and so when it came up at that point that this is my this is the moment of opportunity things were going well in rough magic I thought you know I've one shot at this I'm going for it yeah. So I did
0: and were there any surprises when you found yourself in doing it or was it broadly speaking you know that you were match fit at that stage you had been running well and, and as you said like in a in a good solid vein mm. of form with rough magic that it kind of was it relatively seamless or any surprises along the way
1: God it was. Uh, it, well, it was relatively seamless and there was a great team in there and you just you just you got on with it and you had to do it. You know, you you had to put on a big show once a year, uh, and the clock was ticking all year long, um, right down to the you know, the program going to print. Um but I have to say it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, you know, professionally. It's really? it's a really tough job. Um and every bit of it is tough, you know. Um like every single show, finding those shows and getting them to work technically and fitting them on the stages and making them work um, financially, and then worrying about selling the tickets and raising the sponsorship, and it was a it's a really uh, it's, it's it's a tough gig, um, but it was extremely satisfying. I loved traveling the world again, hanging out in bars late at night with cool people. What's uh, <laughs> the like. <laughs> And there's some really cool people, um, and. Uh, yeah, you know, hanging out with, you know, Thomas Ostermar and Romeo Castellucci and, you know, late at night in, um, uh, in, in uh, Manchester, Edinburgh, whatever we might be. Um, yeah, it was it was cool. Um, and uh, I loved to travel and then I hated to travel and that it, it wears you down. Yeah. And so I said going in there I was doing five years and no more and I was determined that that was the case. I had no idea what I was going to do next. Yes. <laughs> I was genuinely scratching my head. Um, and Daniel Ryan and Dermot McCrum, my current chair, came in to ask my opinion on the development of what has now become the Lyre. And it wasn't until some, sometime later, again, flicking through the Irish Times, when I saw
0: the ad for the job and the Lyre, that I realised, ah, that's the one. Well, before we get on to the Lyre, because I do <laughs> want to chat about that, um, I, I want to talk about how... How do you put together a program like DTF, and how do you balance it about? How do you balance it in relation to bringing in the best of the international stuff, uh, providing a platform for Irish stuff? Because one of the things that stands out for me was the reviewed section in the festival, which I think was of crucial importance to an awful lot of companies and artists at mm-hmm. that time. So, uh, as you balance it together, what were you hoping for as you put the program together? God, yeah, we
1: could do a whole, <laughs> do a whole forty-five minutes on that, because uh, it is a wonderful, again, it's a wonderful challenge and opportunity, but it's it's a quite a, it's quite a matrix in terms of how it comes together. I suppose you know I always felt it was in conversation with the city, yeah, um, and it was in conversation with the nation, particularly with regard to theatre and Ireland. Um, and that it was a that was a vital conversation as far as I was concerned. It was a, you know I came in on the fiftieth anniversary. It was fifty years old. You had a very um, educated, uh, literate theatre audience who had seen it all and wanted to see it a lot more. Um, and that was that was what was compelling about it. Um, and that it was, and then within that conversation, you know, Irish theatre artists had always used it for inspiration in terms of. Um, that, that, you know, the influence that the major artists and the major international companies had on the quality of the work here. And I suppose when I came in, I kind of felt, you know, I did feel, and I've said it publicly, I felt the festival had gotten kind of flabby and middle-aged. It was, you know, slightly tired. It had kind of so much ground to the kind of uh, beautiful energy of the Fringe. And I kind of thought that it really, you know, it needed a, a serious injection of energy. Um, and around that I thought, you know, that there was a new generation of theatre makers in Ireland coming through whose work was for the first time genuinely international in its yeah. outlook. And that actually w- was um, very aware of the kind of international developments in theatre and the major companies and the major trends and the and the kind of new forms that were coming through like at, at the time verbatim theatre and documentary theatre and post-traumatic theatre, you know. um and you know and that actually there was a way of programming the irish work that was in a genuine conversation now mm-hmm. um uh, and talking back to the international work as much as kind of just kind of um um you know reflecting in its glow and so i thought that's how i kind of approached the irish program to a large extent and then i always believed that it need it was a, a because it's a dedicated theater festival which is very unique in the world yeah that it needed range within that, around, needed a very liberal um, view and definition of what theatre is and was and could be. Um, and so I suppose I had different audiences in mind as part of that. You know, I always believed it was important to be programming beyond your own taste um, and programming work, you know, for, you know, for, for theatre audiences of all shapes and sizes. And so I had three photographs on my computer, um, two people I knew personally, uh one was uh you, you know lots of people listening to this podcast might be able to guess a young man in his twenties who worked in Irish theater who traveled a lot around the world seeing work um an older um designer um who had you know a very evolved um view of what good theater was, and um a photograph of a a woman in her sixties uh who in my mind lived in somewhere in South Dublin who you know who attended the festival on Saturday night, usually in the gaiety. Um, and I suppose very broadly I was kind of thinking there, there's three of many audiences and I would look at every programme thinking, what have I got for her, what have I got for him, what have I got for them? Um, and, and try very deliberately, I suppose, trying to programme a really a, 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 as broad a church as possible mm. uh, or for as broad a church as possible.
0: As you look back on your time there, are there moments or shows or initiatives that you're particularly proud of? Yeah, that's funny, you mentioned, reviewed
1: earlier, like it was that thing about that platform that the festival, you know, it fulfills such an important function for Irish theatre makers in terms of showcasing the work internationally and, in, um, you know, indeed building on the work of Theatre Champion and ITI in terms of the theatre exchange. Um, and so, you know, I suppose I was always conscious about how can, how can the festival better serve Irish theatre, Um. So setting up um, reviewed was very uh, was kind of a, was a moment sitting in a hotel in Sydney going how are we going to do this and I thought I know I'll go and talk to Culture Ireland about actually having a showcase you know let's let's revive the work, um, but I think the thing I'm most proud of actually is the next stage, um, where it was um, you know uh, funny when I was in Rough Magic uh, as producer Christine Madden was now literary manager, and and she. Of course, is German and had um, uh, been hugely impressed by the international program for young artists at the Theatre Treffen in Berlin. And I knew she'd sent a proposal in to Don Shipley in the Dublin Theatre Festival. Um, so when I got off the job, I knew that there was somewhere in in his desk, in in, in a file, with a proposal from Christine. And I took it out. And it was the first thing I did actually was call to her and said, Can we talk seriously about this? And went to the Theatre Forum and said, Will you partner on this? Yeah. And um, I was determined to do it again. It was about creating um, you know, a, a very direct route for a new generation of theatre makers to feel at home in the festival, to, feel, to, to um, connect directly with the programme, to meet with the artists, to learn from the programme and to build their own capacity to make great work. Um, and then when we launched a fifth programme in 2011, um, nine of the Irish shows that year were the lead artists on the shows were graduates of the Next Stage programme. So it just really felt like it had delivered. I suppose a platform for a whole new generation of theatre makers.
0: Well, I mean that was exactly my experience. I did Next Stage in twenty fourteen and twenty fifteen. We had at the Ford of the festival. I mean, like it, it was, it it was that influential and continues to be that influential. Mm. And it's it, it's a fantastic thing I've spoken before, but the luxury of immersing yourself in theatre for that good solid stretch of time, mm. and you know interrogating your own practice and stuff, and how vital and valuable that is for people. Just again, just the luxury to go. I can put everything else in my mind and focus on this. It's it was hugely important and for an awful lot of people that I know that have gone through it that just, you know, like a seismic moment for them career-wise.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and, and a relatively simple idea, actually. <laughs> well, you know, that's one of the things you learn from experience, actually, you know, that a, a, this, you know, there's nothing as good as a simple idea mm-hmm. that is, you know, an effective solution to a problem, you know.
0: I would like to move on to the Lear. Yeah. My favourite thing in the world, as you know. <laughs> I'm very vocal in my support of the Lear. Um... Talk to me about You know as you say seeing the ad come up in the paper and going right, okay I want to roll the dice on this and the appeal for you in I guess forming the next generation of of theatre artists. Yeah Gosh where to start on that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It now is all-consuming. It is my life. Um, I Went to the launch as I say I'd met with Daniel and Dermot and they'd been asking advice from my festival hat on I was happy to give. to a meeting with I think with a lot of the you know, um, you know kind of uh, with kind of leaders from the theatre community in terms of uh, helping to shape what the uh, then became, um, and then I went to the launch in Trinity in the exam hall. I was invited, and you know the great and good of Irish theatre turned up, and I, I actually wept. Like I my, my eyes filled with tears when I heard what was planned and the detail the thought that had already gone into it, and when Brian Singleton then said that it would also be. And um, the first ever MFA programs in Ireland in directing, playwriting, and design as well, and it would be in a purpose-built new building. And you know, I just thought, this is it's, it's, this is insane. This is astonishing. This is mm. this is what we have all longed for and believed we needed for so long. So and long. Yeah, and it just felt like I, I I led the standing ovation in the exam hall and that at that launch. I remember thinking, this is an, this is an astonishing achievement what these people have what they've pulled off. Um. And I still didn't think I was going to run this, And then I saw the ad in the paper and then I had a moment of, oh, maybe I could do it. Because, you know, you're full of self-doubt, of course, at the beginning when you face any big challenge like that. Um, But I remember I remember um, two questions in the interview, actually, that crystallised it for me as to why I think I was interested. And the first one um, was, you know, why I was talking about the SEEDS programme and the Next Stage programme and working with young artists and how that had always been a passion of mine it's something that has always uh, driven me forward and um, Ed Kemp who is the director of Rada asked me why did I think that was, why was I interested in you know, helping young people get inserted in their careers and I had a moment of pause where I genuinely didn't know the answer to that question. Um, and uh, what I said at the time was that I think I've always, I've always had great um, ambition but relatively little ego and that it's a really interesting... Um, kind of a combination, because I've always invested my ambition in the company, whether it was um, uh, Rough Magic or the Dublin Theatre Festival, and that actually uh, investing my ambition in the next generation of artists mm-hmm. is something that I would find extremely gratifying. And then they asked me at the end the, the classic question, ha- have you any questions for us? And I remember saying, I suspect that if I started answering que- asking questions, that, you know, like we might be here all day and there, there's so many answers to be found that i think what you probably need is for somebody to roll their sleeves up to help find the answers as well to just identifying the questions because the questions seem so obvious and yeah. how the hell are we going to how are we going to achieve this from scratch you know that I, I was appointed in july and it opened in september you know so uh you know, and uh, although really great work had been done by Brian and Danielle and Termit and others in the lead-up to it, but it just felt like an astonishing challenge and a, and a huge opportunity to just roll your sleeves up, as I was saying, get stuck in, to make something extraordinary happen. And that's been the experience of it,
0: actually. It's funny you talked about, you know, the, the value in a simple idea. It kind, of, it kind of blows my mind, the idea that we have this incredible actor training school plus all the technical training as well, plus the MFA programmes around it. You go... Well, of course, it makes sense to put this all in one place and to link it together. It's just, it's, 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 it's ingenious, but it's, and I think it's working incredibly well so far. I mean, in terms of the caliber of artists and practitioners who've come out in a relatively short period of time is it mm. three years since the first graduates of the acting program? Yeah, 2014, yeah. Um, it feels that already you guys are punching way above your weight in, in terms of what it should be, you know? Mm.
1: But it was designed like that. That's what's interesting. What's what's brilliant about it and what's brilliant about the thinking behind it, um, that you know I remember I remember at one point saying that Danielle and Dermot they they had, they had made the, this grand ambition that the liver was going to become one of the best acting categories in the world. I remember saying you know yeah we will work towards that and Danielle said no we are going to just be that. I remember, I remember thinking okay that's that's fair and that's fine and reasonable as an ambition but like. It will take us some time to get there, but it was absolutely, you know, that that was the intention, and it was the reason why RADA were asked to come on board from the outset. It was, you know, that actually we need to start off mm. at an international standard. We don't, we don't have the luxury of working towards it, yeah. Um, because you know, I suppose with so many arts or arts initiatives as I'm aware of, you know. You, you, you achieve a baseline and then things improve incrementally very very slowly and very very gradually so the ambition had to be grand and, and, and at the highest level from the outset and, or else it wasn't worth doing yeah. um, because you wouldn't get there by degrees you had to you had to arrive at that level and that was it it was built into the thinking was built into the DNA and it was built into the thinking that you know the success is because of the I think the direct relationship with industry
0: with the business but that's key for me the idea so you know you look around you know, when I came through the old three year actor training programme at Trinity, we had three final year shows, which was still, you know, three times as many as they had in the Gaiety, yeah. but it's only three. But, you know, in that time that you're getting to be in a room with Annabelle Common or with Connell Morrison or whatever, and, you know, you start to see A how the real world works, but B, you are developing working relationships with with these leaders in the industry. The idea that now for an actor coming through their final year gets like more than half a dozen yeah. I, I guess <laughs> showcase shows. And it means that you are working with all these different directors, with all these different styles, different ways of constructing a piece of theatre that it means that when you graduate and you know sure many of the graduates will be quite young but you're hitting the deck running with a significant body of experience and a diverse set of skill sets and a diverse way of working with all these different practitioners that really sets you up. It stacks the deck in your favour. I mean it's still a hard industry trying to break in is difficult but you're giving them every single opportunity. Yeah, absolutely and I
1: think the other thing is also gives, you know, I suppose we were conscious of creating a, I suppose two things, two guiding principles in my mind when we were starting was, you know, the opportunity of establishing an academy um a drama academy for for the first time in the 21st century. Um, you know, all the other drama schools um started with an acting degree before the invention of the uh, film camera. Mm-hmm. Um and uh and they added slowly they added on a stage management course and a design course and a directing course and here was here was an opportunity to start from scratch and to think about it as the and i as i keep saying to myself the academy as an ensemble um and that uh and so what the students also graduate with is is really significant relationships like the relationships between the actors and the stage managers probably make more shows happen um in kind of fringe venues around dublin than anything else that uh, people have experienced in the Lair but then if you add to that re- relationships with um, directors and designers and, and playwrights you know there's fully f- f- formed companies that are yeah. emerging uh, from the layer. but the key thing I think you know there was going back to Trinity's um the kind of the report from the working group when the old acting degree was, was, was discontinued it said that it needed to be um, independent supported fully supported by Trinity but independent of it and that was a key and crucial decision so it means that we work with you know with half of us in academia but and you know the rest of our body is very firmly working in the industry but you know it's not and it's not just yeah, i suppose the Annabelles and, and the Connells coming and going all the time but it's stage managers and mm-hmm. you know costume supervisors and Val sherlock and um uh, paula Tierney and uh, and it's um designers and monica frawley and uh, Sinead Wallace and Sinead McKenna and it's you know, it's the whole of Irish theatre coming across um the threshold like every Every day like I always say that it works because you can be doing a tech in the Abbey And you can actually take a break run down to the Lair and teach for mm-hmm. an hour and go back to your tech, yeah. you know And at that at that level of um, Porousness is actually I think what's key to the success and key to the key to the how plugged in it is to the industry um, and it, you know, like Philip McNeil once said to me that um, the lyric "Green Room" of Irish theatre, and, uh, <laughs> and it feels like that sometimes. You know yeah. what I mean? Like the staff room and the lyrics, where all the gossip now is exchanged. It's where all the cool where I get still hang out with all the cool kids. Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it's a wonderful place, and it does genuinely. Like when you take a step back from it and think about it, um, I think it's you know, it's it's a it's. And a remarkable achievement on behalf of Trinity and and the Cahill Ryan Trust, and that amazing gift to the nation, actually, um, you know, and you know, we work hard as well to realise the ambition of it and the potential of it.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's massively exciting, as you know, I'm your number one fan. Yeah, um, and at this stage of the of the first fifteen set of graduates, I have not either six or seven off my hit list of people to work with. So I'm just, I'm, just, I'm not finished yeah. until I get all 15. Yeah. And we keep uh, giving you 16 new ones. I know, <laughs> <you. laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's what the problem is. Yeah. Um, so as you look forward then, because there, as I said, there's always been already been a huge amount of success in terms of the actors coming through the programme, the technicians coming through, and also people coming through the MFA in terms of design and writing and directing. Do you have ambitions and goals for it? Do you have an idea where you'd like to see the Lear going in the next number of years? Yeah, it's funny, I, my ambitions for the Lear are very much tied up in my
1: ambitions for the for the whole theatre sector and the TV and film sector, actually, because I think, you know, I've always believed from the beginning that the Lear would actually um, rejuvenate and um, energise uh, and reshape the theatre industry. It had the potential mm-hmm. and the, uh, the power to achieve that. Um, I think you, you know and you know it's very gratifying you know I hear people are n- now saying to me they can really feel the impact that it's having on the industry and I think that I think it's really important that it is that it's a very symbiotic relationship in that way like the lure needs the, the business and the business needs the lure. um, but you know I think they can only both thrive now if you know we need the the rising tide that's going to lift both boats in this case um. You know, I think a lot about what are all of our how are our graduates going to sustain careers. Mm. Um, like I've been recently appointed to, to the arts council, and you know, I think at a really good time. You know, you know, Shock has reiterated his commitment to doubling arts funding within seven years, but unfortunately missed the first opportunity to um put his money where his mouth was. Um, but I really believe actually that you know with a growing economy that upswing is going to come. You know, I think really good work is happening at the arts council at the moment. I suppose that's why I've committed myself to the work, and um, you know, I think making great art work as a policy and the new funding framework that we're now beginning to roll out is really going to um, is going to make a positive impact. And I think we need to see the the, the investment in the arts happening again, because you know, I think that's where I, where I see the graduates so such talent talented graduates leaving the layer and you know some of the actors for example getting work and then waiting another six or eight months before they get another gig and I, I think you know th- we're not producing theatre at, at the level that we were when I started yep. off you know when you had the 29 independent companies doing one or two shows a year you know where there was a real sense of a, a really active community mm. uh, here in Dublin and around the country and um, and we've got to get back there you know we've got to create the opportunities for people to make great work for for audiences Um and i suppose that's and i think because i think that now needs to happen in order for the lyre to really thrive and, and achieve its full potential and i see it, you know you see it happening in tv and film production here at the moment which is thriving um and you know a lot of our students have been represented in starting their careers in london and you know you you have a sense of just of a yes it's a much bigger city but even you know proportionately there's a disproportionate amount of work and activity and mm. um, auditions happening um and we've got to i think we i've i'm i suppose thinking a lot about investing my energies and trying to make that dynamic scene a reality here again in ireland
0: yeah it's a conversation i have with a lot of the graduates as they come out because you know again i graduated in 2002 when there were all those independent companies mm. and the, all those more parts to audition for um but also then you you remember that for each of those shows there's the role of the director, there's the designers, yeah, yeah, there's the, the social manager team, all of those jobs have evaporated yeah. and for what would be comparatively in the broader picture of the nation's annual budget, a tiny, tiny fraction of 1% would have such a massively disproportionately positive effect on us that it feels that we really do need to keep yeah. keep working and plugging away on that. Um, I think we've become much better at, at it, you know, like I was involved in, setting, uh,
1: in the beginnings of the National Campaign for the Arts. Um, I'm a big believer in you know us as as a sector becoming much more aware of, of political systems and, and much more um vocal within them and i think we once now that we started that we can never stop uh, that we have a responsibility and especially you know n- i'm now starting to feel older and uh, uh you know feeling so you know um feeling suddenly realizing that you're the establishment as opposed to the kind of you know the hungry young book um and You know, there's a responsibility that comes with that, actually, to try and, I suppose, to try and um, ensure that the, uh, the circumstances are as strong as they could be for the people coming behind you.
0: Well, fingers crossed they will be very soon, and the good news is that everyone coming out of the Lear will be absolutely poised to take full advantage of that situation when they do. Lachlan, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. An absolute pleasure to have the chat. Thank you very much. So there you have it, the great Lachlan Deegan, one of the true good guys of the industry and... It's impossible not to get swept up in his enthusiasm and passion for the art form. You know, Hearing him talk about those magic moments in the Peacock or Project reminded me of having exactly those moments in exactly those theatres back in the mid to late 90s and it just makes me so happy that that's the kind of positive energy that is shaping the next generation and I think with Lachlan at the helm the future of the business here is looking very bright indeed and so that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around the country at the Abbey Theatre they have let the right one in the Red Shoes continues at the Gate Theatre Rapunzel the Gaiety Panto is at the Gaiety and thankfully as is tradition Santi brought me tickets to go and see The Gayly Panto again this year. I'm very excited about that. Uh, At the Borgosh they are continuing with The Sound of Music starring the great Lucio O'Byrne. The new theatre has Save and Quit coming up. The Civic still has The Three Musketeers. Uh, At the Viking Theatre in Clontarf they have Typhoid Mary. Uh, Bewley's has All Honey coming up Um, Smock Alley's going to have all those great first Fortnite shows. There's a varied programme there. Do please go and check those out. And then as we go around the country, heading south to the Everyman in Cork they continue with Beauty and the Beast The Lime Tree has Aladdin and at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast they have What the Reindeer Saw and Beauty and the Beast so that's us that is episode 8 in the books we will of course be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers but in the meantime this has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast for Angus Oag McAnally, I'm Angus Oag McInally. we'll see you next week